0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to see everyone, and uh, if you're visiting with us, we are very humbled that you're willing to come and meet with people that you may have not met before or know, um, but are still willing to uh, still willing to meet because of your desire to worship God and be with God's people. Um, it's just very encouraging, and if you are visiting, we're following um, Romans 12 through the entire year, so... You're kind of coming into an ongoing study that we've been doing every month on Sunday mornings, and uh, we're looking at Romans 12 because in Romans 12, there's there's a very point-by-point uh, point kind of outline that Paul gives of what it means to begin to really respond to the call of God, um, all the mercies that we've received, and we're urged to be changed anew and new and become a new kind of people. And we're in verse 13, and the way that I've titled this lesson, which is on the board, is, we need to learn to give and receive God's grace, that what we've been given is something that we then need to give, and we'll try to make more sense of this as we, as we talk about this. Um, but I, I want to point out something before I, I read anything in Romans 12, and I'll read this as I've been, been reading it. I'll read the first two verses, then skip to verse 13. But something I've, I've really noticed as uh, I've been studying this particular this particular uh, verse is there it seems like a very purposed flow so far in Romans twelve, like a, a progression in the points, that it's not that Paul is just kind of bringing up random things as he's going through this chapter. And I think a simple way to describe it is in verses one and two he's focusing on really the love of God and how God's love should impact me. And then verses 3 through 8, it's the love among brethren and how I should respond to God's love by loving the brethren. Um, In verse 9, it goes back to the love of God, learning to abhor evil and cling to what is good, which ultimately is of God. Verse 10, with showing preference and honor to one another, it goes back to then swinging to loving the brethren. Verses 11 and 12, with being diligent, fervent, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, all of those things go back to my love for God. And then verse 13 brings us back to loving the brethren. And I think that's important to notice because there's a momentum to this. I think applying this command really, in, a, in, in some ways, relies on the momentum of everything before it being true. And so the the importance of the impact of this, I think, will be much Stronger if we've been trying to really apply everything up to this point in our lives. But another, another thing in that I think that's important to know is the love that God has given us and how we reveal that love toward others are not things that can be separated from each other. They're really woven together and meant to be woven together. So the more that I comprehend God's love and the reality of that love and how his love works, The more I'm going to be embodying that same love in very real and specific ways, especially to the brethren, it'll motivate me to do so. So I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12, and then read verse 13, and we'll begin the lesson. Uh, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. And in this lesson, so I just first need to beg your mercy in this. Uh, These qualities, even though they're seemingly very simple in the statement that commands them, are way beyond me in their application. And so with this lesson, just just be mindful that I might not teach things that really relate specifically to how you feel you need to apply these verses, but maybe you can find some principles that equip you to think further about it. Um, Because I I really want to emphasize that verse 13 is a command based on what every individual has received in verses 1 and 2. That because of God's mercies, we're all charged to find a way to make these things real in our lives somehow, right? Um, So, the first thing, Titus 3.14. I'm going to put some of these verses on the board to try to push through some of these points. Um, But Titus 3.14, Titus is told that our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs that they will not be unfruitful. So this is something we must learn. These are good deeds that we're studying now. And we need to learn, I think is the really key thing here. We've got to understand how do we learn to engage in good deeds? How do we learn to have the desire to contribute to the needs that exist in this local work, but also to be hospitable, like it says, to meet pressing needs that we will not be unfruitful? Another thing with this is in John 15, verse 1 and 2 and 16, Jesus teaches that we have been appointed specifically for the purpose of bearing fruit, which is only reasonable if in John 15 Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. What's the point of being attached to a vine if you're not going to grow from it, right? The vine of itself naturally produces that which gives growth and fruit from its branches. So we have to remember that this is, this is what we've been called for to contribute to things like this. So I want to think for a minute in this first point, how can I learn to better engage in good deeds? Because that's really where I struggle, right? I, I see the command, but then I, I don't necessarily of myself comprehend what it means to actually learn to be active in that. And it really keeps me crippled spiritually in a lot of ways. So the first thing is, if you're in Titus chapter 2, if you look at verse 11, uh, in Titus chapter 2, in verse 14, it talks about how God's people can be zealous for good deeds, but in verse 11, what motivates us to be zealous is in verse 11. It says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. So as much as I could really hammer on the point, we must bear fruit. We must do this. If you don't do this, you're sinning if you're not doing Doing this. I really don't think ultimately that's how God is looking to fully motivate us. Like, we need to see it as something of grave consequence. We need to understand just the force that's behind the command. But ultimately, we need to appreciate that this is a work of renewing the mind that's applied by comprehending the grace and the mercy of God. And it's important to realize that. I mean, you just think about it. How much has God given us to to motivate us to do these things? In Romans 1 through 11, really the central point of everything is that God gave Jesus, which was the greatest thing that God could have sacrificed, the greatest thing he could have done to redeem us, to restore us, and forgive us, and to give us the opportunity to be risen with him, to live as instruments of righteousness. And so God has given everything, so it's only reasonable that we in return give him everything in return. He's given us everything. And so we give him everything in return. This idea of being a whole living sacrifice to God. But I don't think it's just that. I think the grace of God really teaches us that when we follow God's charge or command or word, that in that God's not just asking us to invest in him. What really he's revealed is that anything that we invest in him, he reinvests back into us exceedingly more than any little thing that we gave to him. Right? And we, we need to comprehend that, that whatever it requires for me to obey God, whatever struggle it requires, God will reinvest in very real ways into my faith, far beyond anything I have to sacrifice in order to obey him. But just the idea of the creator of the universe who I've sinned against and offended, he can be pleased with what I do. He loves when I contribute to the needs of the saints. God loves when I'm hospitable. These are things that God loves. And I become closer to God as I practice these things. I can receive more of the riches of the knowledge of Christ and his glory as I apply myself to these things. And there's security in God's command. So when I obey God, I can have confidence that God is carefully watching over me and thoughtfully working in me to more greatly fulfill his promises and that I'm, I'm moving very purposely with God toward the fulfillment of his promise. And so... I can also, in that, have assurance as I do struggle and as I feel inadequate by obeying God and seeing that there's so much more to do than than what I understand, there's so much more to be than what I am, that God will be merciful to me, that he understands my weakness and his compassions are unleashed in full force toward those who are willing to humble themselves and obey him. So there's just so many angles to God's grace that when we comprehend his grace... It, it motivates a very special and urgent kind of obedience that we need to have. But then I think we need to consider Jesus' example, that everything we do should bring us to reflect back on Jesus, that if, if he's my teacher, if I'm his disciple, ultimately it's in the knowledge of him specifically that I'm led to, to fulfill these things. And specifically, I think there's, there's examples that are very inspiring, like John 13 we looked at last week. The the final night of Jesus' life, when the pressures of the world were on his shoulders, he takes a towel and girds himself and washes the disciples' feet. In Luke 19, when Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die, on his way he makes one last stop in Jericho to spend the night with Zacchaeus, so that he can lodge with Zacchaeus and teach and secure Zacchaeus in salvation. Um, Even when Jesus was being led to be crucified, there were women behind him, bewailing his suffering, and he turned to them, considered them, and said, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. If they're doing this when the tree is green, what will they do when it is dry? And so he's concerned about what the condition of the nation as revealed in his crucifixion will bring in the future beyond his death, right? So Jesus always was mindful of the needs of the people around him. He was always willing to go out of his way, out of his own even, suffering, to meet and address those needs that were within his reach. So when we consider Jesus' example and the thoughtfulness of that example, I think it helps us learn how to better engage. Uh, turn to Proverbs twenty-two thirteen. I think this is a really helpful principle. Proverbs twenty-two thirteen. <clears throat> so Proverbs twenty-two thirteen says, The sluggard says, There is a lion outside. I will be killed in the streets. So don't say that. Clear enough, right? <laughs> I think the principle of this is that somebody who's really not interested in being active, they will make the application of what it takes to be active seem way worse or way more demanding than it really is. Which reveals that they're really just not interested in doing it, right? Like, here's my, here's my safe place, and to go outside of that, I mean, I'm going to die. So I just need to, I'll be safer here and I'll just, I'll stay right here, right? And so here's what I have on the board. We need to turn that around. If we're really interested in God and if we really understand his grace, like in the beginning of Romans 12, his mercies, there will be a fundamental recalibration, like a shift in my perspective that instead of like exaggerating the demand of obedience and always putting it outside of the realm of my ability or time, I will begin to very very sincerely look for ways to just make it work with who I am and what I can do. Like, I'll creatively look for ways that even if, it's, even if it seems so small, I'll look for ways to make it real in the life that I'm living, right? So please remember that. Like, I might say things where you think, like, well, I don't have the time for that. Or I don't have the ability to do that. Well, just try to put yourself into the mind of working to make it work for where you are and who you are, Right? God understands we're different. He understands that we have limitations. But he still calls us to do these things. So instead of disqualifying yourself for whatever reason, just shift the focus, right? You're not going to die by being hospitable or contributing to the saints. God will make it work. And then lastly, we need to pray. It's like the most important thing. We really have to be interested enough to realize this is a struggle. It is hard to gain wisdom to know how to apply things that seem really plain and clear um, and then when I do apply them, there is really a great struggle that I face in doing so. So we just have to get accustomed to praying for God's help and just being constantly aware of his mercy and really constantly working to rely more and more on his mercy as I'm faced more and more with my inadequacy as I begin to obey. So with with all of that, I want to get into really looking at what does it mean to contribute to the needs of the saints. Um, and... I want to first just point out, I think there's two main needs. There's physical and spiritual needs, and we're going to talk about both of those. But these, this is talking specifically about the needs of the saints, right? And saints, if you don't know that, is just God's people. So those, I think, especially who are within the sphere of this local work, but I mean, it would be, of course, if you know saints with needs in other places, it would, this would qualify into that. But just some principles I want to mention just briefly leading into this any need that exists here is within the scope of God. Like, God is able to grant that we can meet needs in a way that fulfills His will. And really a point with that is the language of this is very important. Notice it says, contributing, not fulfilling or filling. I get really discouraged from... Pursuing meeting a need when I feel like what it would take to meet that need is so far beyond what I can do or have the ability to do. So I just don't do anything. We're not being asked to fully fill a need. We're just being asked to contribute to the need. That's it. We're just being asked to contribute. Sometimes it may be, I think, that God, if there is a great need, that just for the saints to work to contribute is enough. And maybe it can glorify God even if the need isn't fully met. Because maybe there's lessons the person can learn through just the love of the saints being exercised in whatever meek and humble way it can be, right? Um, But I think the presence of needs also cultivates growth. And I think that's very motivating needs aren't there just because they're there but needs cultivate thoughtful growth among membership and create better unity and i think as well like needs demand thoughtful awareness and those who are willing to engage so that's i think a part of our growth here i think this church locally is really at a critical point where there are needs here spiritual needs primarily that if we don't work to be aware and meet those needs, it will really hinder our ability to continue to grow, right? I think God is doing a lot of things with this local work to push us to apply these things more. So I think this is an important lesson for us, especially in the time that we're in. Um, But I also think a principle in this is we need to be willing to talk about needs and if I see a need that I can't meet, I can maybe ask somebody about that who has more wisdom or ability than I do. And I can even ask people how to help me understand how to meet a need that I see. Right. So don't think that like, the burden is on you to figure everything out. Like, we can work together and talk together about how to meet the needs that are present. And I think we should do that as well. Um, but last principle I want to mention before we get into some applications. We need to be willing to really work towards being very intimate and personal in how we meet needs. Um, the world at large generally seeks to meet needs in the most institutionalized way, the most general way, and that's not how God has designed it to be among his people, right? So, like, a lot of times we'll hear of, like, institutional churches, but I think I can be institutional in my thought that, you know what, I'm just going to throw money at a problem or be very general about something, and then that's that's it, Right? Contributing to the needs is more than just the collection plate going around, which, which that is a part of it, right? That is a part of it, but that's not where it stops. And if I think that's where it stops, I think I do have too general an idea of what this is really talking about. So first, physical needs. Go to Psalm 37. And just the point of this is God's people are meant to be characterized by their generosity. Psalm 37. And this will lead into the next part of this. Um, Psalm 37, look at verse 21 to begin. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. Verse 25, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. Um, We'll look at this a little bit in 1 John, but a problem I have when I, when I hear that word need, I can be so close-handed with how I define that, right? Because Romans 12, 13 isn't talking about how the congregation uses its treasury. This is talking about something the individual decides to do, right? So really the point is, I can be a little more open-handed here with what I consider to be a need. And I think the more I apply the heart, especially that Psalm 37 and that Jesus fulfilled, the more open-handed I become in really how I address needs and what I see to be a need. Go to 1 John 3, 16 and 18. And the point of this is, like I was saying, I've, I've got to be careful to not close my heart to needs that I could be seeing, but I have to be open-hearted and open-handed. Uh, 1 John 3, 16 through 18. Um, sorry, I'm in 1 Peter. Just one second to get there verse john three fifteen through 16 or 16 through 18 rather we know love by this that he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him how does the love of god abide in him little children let us not love with word or with tongue but in deed and in truth the hard thing about this is we live we live in a place that is very prosperous and there's just a lot of means that we all tend to have, and there aren't very many, like, pressing physical needs. But that still doesn't change that, like I said to Titus earlier in that book, we need to always be ready for every good deed. We need to always be prepared to meet physical needs as they arise. But Matthew 25, when Jesus is talking about judgment, I think we need to realize that there's more to physical needs than just monetary giving. In Matthew 25, on the judgment, he separates the sheep and the goat from one another, and he tells them, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. So it's more than just a money thing. We need to be aware of of what the needs are for the individual. I can have a very general scope a very general scope of what I myself will define as a need. But until I get to know what a need is for the individual, I can't really, I think, begin to contribute the way that I'm called to, right? When we realize what a person's needs are, we can begin to meet needs in an individualized way. Somebody may for them have what is a need for them, that for someone else may actually not qualify as a need because they just they don't need that, right? So I think we're, we're compelled to understand the individual and their needs. And in Matthew 25, Jesus associates that as even how we treat him, right? So we need to be careful to closely examine the needs that brethren have. Now, there may not always be physical needs, but the first point I want to make with spiritual needs, there will always be spiritual needs. And I think these are oftentimes the more pressing of the two is the spiritual aspect of this. Look at back at Romans 12, 6 through 8. I think we actually have an outline of what qualifies in some senses or maybe even most senses as spiritual needs. So Romans 12, verse 6, we actually we have a list of things. We've got prophecy, which when we talked about this, we mentioned that maybe we could equivocate that to somebody who just, is able to speak God's Word directly as the moment requires or needs, right? Somebody who's just, they're very direct. They they know to say something from God's Word that is helpful. The church needs teachers. The church needs teachers, right? Um, We need people who are willing to serve. We need people who are willing to teach and exhort, lead, and show mercy. And I think when you have an environment where all of those needs are being actively met by different members... That's an environment where not only can we grow in an ideal kind of way and grow in unity and faith and the fullness of Christ, but new Christians, I think, can be brought into an environment like that and flourish. Right? People need mercy when they become a new Christian. They need teaching when they become a new Christian. They need to be exhorted. The charge of the gospel has to be put into the mind in specific ways. And I want to make the point as well with new Christians, Babes in Christ, they always need a special focus for these things. And I think something that can can stop me from contributing sometimes is if, if somebody looks like they're already contributing so much to that need, I can think, well, what I contribute is so small in comparison, it's not going to matter. It's just not true. It's not true. Just a sentence or a thoughtful word Given to a new Christian with this purpose, or any Christian, fulfills a need, right? It's not the amount I'm contributing, whether it's money, clothing, whatever. Spiritually, it's it's the thoughtfulness and the faith that compels the acting, right? So don't don't be discouraged by feeling like you contribute less than someone else who may be working to contribute to that same need, right? Every part doing its share matters. Um, And be thoughtful about needs that you can fulfill that are just not appropriate for others to fulfill. What I mean by that is like male and female, right? Like we just need to be wise, but I think husbands, if you see a need that your wife can fulfill, just talk to her about that. Or if wives who are usually much more perceptive than their husbands, if you see a need that your husband should fulfill, talk to him about that. Really encourage him to be thoughtful in fulfilling that, right? So just, we, we need to be creative and mindful and purposeful about meeting the needs that are here. And again, there are needs here. And so if you can think of a need in your own mind, as we've been talking about this, hold on to that and work to contribute, right? Again, it's not that each person needs to fulfill it of themselves. We contribute, and that's enough and pleasing to God. All right, so hospitality. If you look at uh, Romans 12:13 again, so the New American Standard says contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Uh, the ESV, the English Standard Version, says seek to show hospitality. And then the King James Version says given to hospitality. Uh, I think the uh, ESV really gives a good sense of the word. These are some definitions i put on the board from like uh, Greek word definitions I'm um, like Greek dictionaries, basically. The word literally means to run swiftly in order to catch a person or thing, to run after a person or a thing, um, or to press on figuratively of one who is in a race or one runs swiftly, swiftly to meet a goal. And here's a fascinating thing. I want to show you something that I'm going to put on the board here in just a second. Verse 14, the same Greek word is in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Just guess what word it is. It's persecute. When Paul is talking about his conversion and his past before his conversion in the book of Acts, when he says, I persecuted this way to the death, that's that word, pursuing. It's the same same Greek word being translated differently in a different place. Acts 26.11, he says, same kind of idea, I kept pursuing them, that is Christians, even to foreign cities. That's what we're talking about. We are talking about a hospitality that is like a passion of our lives. And here's why this is hard, as I, as I even say that, is kind of like we said in the class, like as I teach others, in my teaching myself? I don't know if I can say that I am this about per- hospitality, that I'm pursuing it as if Saul was persecuting the church. That was like the focus of his life, was persecuting the church. He left everything else he was doing to go and do that, Right? And so I think it helps to put this into perspective because hospitality is just difficult. God is a God who pursues hospitality. I think we really need to understand that, that we've been created in the image of God, and God primarily is a God of hospitality, creation. He created the earth and everything in it for two people initially, right, in the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden was like this very special place in the midst of the whole earth where, like, circumstances would be most ideal for these two people. He did all of that just to be hospitable, right? He's risking a lot by doing that too, wasn't he? Angels. Hebrews chapter 1 at the end of the chapter mentions that angels are ministering spirits sent to give aid to those who will inherit salvation. Have you ever thought about how angels exist and were created and function to serve God's purpose of hospitality and that God created them to be hospitable? God is a God of hospitality. He works and prepares to be hospitable. Israel being brought into Canaan, taking them from Egypt to lead them into Canaan, that was a land of hospitality. He was bringing them into a place by his own mercy and grace and just giving them fields already sown, houses already built, a land that, just like Eden, was the best of all lands for these worthless people. He's a God of hospitality salvation ephesians 2 12 and 13 says you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of christ and that you who are once strangers and aliens to god's covenant of promise without god and without hope in the world we've been brought into his house god is a god of hospitality he's invited everyone into his house and that demands god's everything And so finally, I just want to look at how Jesus lived and urged true hospitality. First thing I want to do is actually go to Luke chapter 10. And I really want to emphasize that this isn't just a defining truth of the character of God. It's actually a defining truth of the kingdom. Look at Luke chapter 10. And just keep that point in mind as we read this. Hospitality is a defining truth of the kingdom. Luke chapter 10, and I'm just going to read uh, verse 3 through 9. So Jesus is he's sending out 70 disciples to go and preach, and here's what he says in verse 3. Go. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, <clears throat> carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. If the man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him, but if not, it will return to you. stay stay in that house eating and drinking what they give you for the labor is worthy of his wages do not keep moving from house to house whatever city you enter and they receive you eat what is set before you and heal those who are in it who are sick and say to them the kingdom of God has come near to you I don't know if you've thought about this and I haven't thought enough about this but without the heart of hospitality within the preaching of the message the message is in many ways actually empty Jesus sent out his disciples from the, from the get-go to maximize hospitality in the process of teaching it and to maximize the impact of what they were teaching. Notice how careful he was to emphasize this. He said, don't carry a money bag or two tunics. And I think the reason he said that is, I'm putting you in a position of need so that you can be in people's houses and enjoy being there. And they can give you things that you're worthy of these wages. And then, when he says, don't move from house to house, he's saying, look, when you find people who are willing to keep you in their house, get to know them. Laugh with them. Sit down with them. Eat with them. Eat what's set before you. Don't complain or make a face. You just spend time with these people. And in spending time with people, you let them know the kingdom of God has come near to them. And you teach them about the kingdom. I think that helps us understand two things. One, Hospitality is more than just how I use my home because the disciples were sent into other people's homes, and I think that was equally hospitable of them to do so. And so we're not burdening others when we let them let us into their home, right? Uh, We're actually giving them an opportunity to connect with us. Sometimes it's actually the prideful thing to refuse service, kind of like John 13 we looked at last week. Lord, you shall never wash my feet, right? That was an arrogant thing for Peter to say. Um, But for two, um, I think there's there's truths of the kingdom and opportunities of the nature of speaking those truths that won't exist without that context, right? It's not that we're trying to love people necessarily or, like, earn our way for people to listen. Like, because there's a popular teaching that, like, I've got to earn people's ear, right? I really don't think that's necessarily true. But that not being necessarily true doesn't mean that we don't do everything we can to connect with people and love people and share the gospel within that context, right? So just like meeting needs is an intimate and individual thing, hospitality as well is an intimate and individual thing. One last thing about this is hospitality we see in this is really an uncomfortable thing, and that's just the reality of it. Jesus said, you go out with all of these good necessities that you could otherwise have, leave them behind, and you go and be vulnerable. And by the way, uh, I sent you as sheep among wolves, just so you know. And it's like he's telling them, like, this isn't going to be comfortable for you because it's not about your comfort. Hospitality is not about our comfort. It's not about things being ideal for us or us looking great or us looking like the honored one. It's about letting someone else get the honor and using that to show the kind of honor that God gives in his kingdom the kind of love available in his kingdom look at Luke 14 12 and 14 this will be the last verse we'll look at I think this is the hardest command Jesus ever gave about hospitality and I feel like it may be the hardest command he ever gave like in general so as we read this I'm going to say some things that will probably be like convicting potentially but like it's for me too, you know, like this, this, is, this is just a hard passage to understand how to apply. So 12 through 14. He also went on to say the, to the one who had invited him, and he's in someone's house. It's like Jesus lived the same thing he taught the disciples in verse 1. He's in the house of a Pharisee. He went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So the first question about this, have you ever done anything like that? Like even one time? Anything like it? And I mean, look at the first group of people that he said not to invite in verse uh, verse 12. I'm sorry, verse, yeah, verse 12. You see where he says, do not invite your friends? He's saying, go find strangers. People that you haven't already established a lot of comfortability with, people who aren't like your in people, go look for them and bring them in. And then in verse 13, the kind of people that he's inviting are people who he was going to have to serve when they got there. How are you going to have a blind person and crippled person sit at your table without having to like hold their hand and like show them everything and do everything. And if they're strangers, you're going to have to do a lot of work to make them feel comfortable. Like, have you ever been somewhere really, really, really fancy, and you couldn't wait to leave? Because it was like, it was nice, and it made you laugh at all the nice, expensive things, but it was like, when you left, you were like, wow, I'm glad we're out of there. Right? When people are in strange environments and they're being treated more nicely than usual, and really make them want to leave. Listen, this is what God does for us in the form of a command. We're the crippled, lame, and blind. God us to take our hands and show us the food on the table and say, here, eat this. We're the ones who are prone to want to leave God's house, and he says, no, please don't leave. You just, you just stay here and this, this is your home now, right? Hospitality is a way to show people that God wants to give a home to people. God's not just trying to forgive people of their sins and say, okay, good luck. You got that. God is begging us, stay in my house. Don't ever leave. That's real hospitality. And I think that's the purpose of real hospitality. Um, So I think just a practical application of this, we always need to find creative ways to bring other people into our lives. And that that can be hard, right? If I don't have a home, that could take the form of like just paying for someone's meal and taking them out to eat somewhere. Um, It could be getting coffee with someone in whatever free time they have in their schedule. It could be going to my neighbor's houses who I haven't talked before and not even inviting them to anything, but just talking with them for a minute and saying, you know what, I'm going to try to develop a relationship here, and it's going to take a while. If I have a home, I could tell someone just be honest that, you know what, we've got a lot of things going on, but you can at least come over for dinner real quick. And sorry, you're going to have to leave after dinner, but you know, we'd like to at least eat with you just for a minute. Um, Just find ways to do it, you know. Um, It's going to be hard. A lot of us have a lot of limitations on our schedules. It's really uncomfortable and it can be really awkward when you embarrass yourself and you try to be friendly but you feel like you're not doing a very good job. God's grace, power, and purpose and the glory of his person is found when we humble ourselves and just try. And God will zealously help us and bless us in doing that. So that's the lesson for this morning. I appreciate your patience listening to these things. But if you're not a Christian, you just, you have to realize the glory of the invitation to go into God's personal house. When where we are outside of his house, I mean, to say that we're lost is just not enough, you know? I mean, we're in a position of eternal damnation, and we deserve it for the dead of our sin. And if we've heard the message of the gospel, we have a Bible. There's no excuse We are guilty and we know what we need to do and who we really are. Accept that invitation. And if there's if there's any other need that can be fulfilled this morning, let us know as we stand or sing and sing an invitation song.